Hello, and welcome to Volcano Bake Meat, Episode 8. Just give it Arkham Combat. I'm Grant. I'm Jeff. I'm Jessica. I'm Paige. And I'm Connor. And uh, today, we are going to be talking about adaptations, specifically when somebody takes a thing that isn't a video game and makes a video game out of it. And I'm going to mostly argue for just giving everything the same combat as the Arkham Asylum games. <laughs> to be fair, it's great combat. Yeah, it no. It's great combat. Even My but... Little Pony. Oh, yeah. My Little Pony, Arkham, Arkham Combat. Perfect. Yeah, that'd be badass. That'd yeah. be <laughs> awesome. Dude, just like front kicking and then like flipping around back kick. Yeah, I mean, I've never watched My Little Pony, but hair, I imagine like, that would work. Friendship is Rainbow violent. Rainbow Dash! <laughs> From the just... art I've seen, I'm pretty sure that's what the show is like. Yeah, yeah I think so. Isn't yeah. it just all about ponies like beating up ninjas? Isn't mm-hmm. that the show? That yeah. sounds correct. Yeah, I think, I think so. Although, I think the true... My Little Pony adaptation is, of course, Robot Unicorn Attack. Yes. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. So we're going to talk about adaptations. What makes... Video game adaptations have a reputation for being bad. What makes video game adaptations bad so much of the time? What makes a good one? And what is source material that is ripe to be adapted that the uh, video game industry hasn't tapped into yet? So yeah, I think uh, to open up, I just want to go around. We all are people who play video games and consume lots of other media, so we've all had that moment of, this would be a great game. So why don't we go around and tell me a video game adaptation that you wish existed. What are you adapting? What kind of game is it? And just one or two features that would make it stand out as uniquely the flavor of that thing. Uh, Jeff, do you want to start with you? All right. I am actually going to hop on the one which I literally just thought of. I want to see a video game adaptation of not necessarily the show Firefly, but the universe. Mm -hmm. I would like to see a crew similar to Malcolm Reynolds in employment, if not necessarily character cast or composition, where you would fly around, you'd just be trying to make a living, uh, you would get to decide as the captain what kind of jobs you're willing to take and all the risks that that entails with uh, making the right friends, making the wrong enemies... Uh, You would have to constantly pay for maintenance on your ship. You could try and upgrade. You could try and hire out new crew members. You could dispose of unwanted crew members. There are just all kinds of fun things that they could have do. So, So, FTL. I was going to say, actually, Rebel Galaxy. I haven't played Rebel Galaxy. It's free PS Plus this month. Okay. You Probably not it. by the time this gets Probably out. Probably not by the time this gets out. Well, maybe, maybe we'll, we'll look into it. We'll see. But I don't know. I think that could be a very compelling thing, because Joss Whedon's mythos that he created for that universe is very, very compelling, very intricate. There's a fascinating story and political intrigue going on. There's just so much fun stuff you could explore that we never got the opportunity to see in the show, and in a sort of open-world almost Grand Theft Auto-esque build an empire kind of thing, there's a lot of possibility there, in my opinion. That could be fascinating. People have tried before, but no project's ever been able to get off the ground. Yeah. I'm not surprised. (laughs) Jessica, what about you? So, um, I would say Neil Gaiman's Sandman would be a really cool one. And not in the, uh, not in the classic sense that pretty much anyone that I just mentioned this to has thought of, like, Telltale, because Telltale for comic books is easy. I actually would want to do, like, an RPG. And while I suck at Dark Souls and can't do Bloodborne to save my life, I kind of envision it in that sort of sense. Um, Maybe flavoring it up with, like, kind of a Bioware-esque feel so that you can, like, walk up to a bunch of people, make relationships and so forth. But where it's this very challenging and kind of painful process to just, like, constantly 
go through and restart and very dreamlike nightmarish I actually just really like the idea of some kind of unholy union between Bioware and From Software <laughs> because having played a bunch of From Software games but usually playing them in the offline mode without any kind of player interaction I found them to be incredibly solitary experiences but all the better for it while as Bioware games while not necessarily social in the aspect of playing it with other people or doing multiplayer of any kind it's an incredibly social game in that you're going out and making friends, talking to people, motivating people, doing all kinds of interaction with other NPCs and the idea of marrying those two very disparate feelings, I find that very intriguing, so no, I like that Yeah, no, it, it, it would just be a fantastic universe I think to kind of explore because Dream is very much this guy who just like despite the fact that he literally comes into contact with every person ever <laughs> he is completely solitary <laughs> that is really fascinating yeah. i never thought about it that way no it, it it would make a really cool rpg i think Paige, what did you have um this is kind of more of i would take any of these but i would really love um especially after seeing nino kuni any sort of miyazaki game could be gorgeous uh, I don't care if it's an action game with, like, Princess Mononoke, if we get a Howl's RPG where you're playing a Sophie, leveling up as a magician and trying to, you know, save Howl from himself. I don't care if it's, like, a Leighton-style Kiki game where you have to solve puzzles before you can deliver packages. That would be awesome. It would be adorable. That would actually be great. That yeah, would be great. I think that would be... That, I think I think that Leighton, the Leighton feel and the Miyazaki feel would mesh together the best. Oh, definitely. I'm just thinking, shit, how do we not have one of these yet? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a perfect... It's a. It's just a perfect world and well, art style and And even in, like, stories. Kiki, there's, like, in a, like, there's a... A fetch quest line where she has to get the present to the kid but then the cat fell out and then she has to put Gigi in and then she has to go back and get Gigi you know like it could like easily Nausicaa Valley of the Wind would totally be like a Final Fantasy type thing yeah you know, right? I can see as either like a Final Fantasy type thing also Jessica said Final Fantasy before I did I did, did. <laughs> uh, I, I sort of was expecting you to say it but when you didn't have the glimmer I was yeah like, no I, it, would, it would work as a Final Fantasy or actually I think it would really work looking at the footage of the newest Zelda game, Breath of the Wild, just like running around and exploring this huge, vast wilderness type thing could work for a Nausicaa type actually, thing. Yeah. Or actually for Mononoke. I was going to say cool. Panzer Dragoon Orta, if you remember that game. Oh, yeah. That was such mm-hmm. a weird game from the past, but that would work, I think, for Nausicaa. Yep. That would be interesting. So, Connor, what did you have? So, my idea for a, a video game adaptation that I would like to see is actually something that I had thought of, and even... St- started the ball softly rolling for a project in RPG Maker. So, spoilers, it's an RPG. Um, but I want to adapt the Mighty Boosh oh God. into a video game. <laughs> okay, so for, for our less informed audience, what is what the hell is the Mighty Boosh? I've seen it. I've seen it, and I don't even know what the hell the I Mighty Boosh is. this is the second episode of our video game podcast where we've had to explain the Mighty Boosh. Have oh, we explained the Mighty Boosh before? Once. And we I did. will explain it again. But the Mighty I'm Boosh... I'm sure it's not the last time you're going to explain it. <laughs> no, it will not. Two things are constant with me. I will explain the Mighty Boosh multiple times, and I will talk about Pokemon Snap. <laughs> <laughs> so, the Mighty Boosh, it's a bit... There's a lot there. Honestly, listeners, just take my word for it. Just Google it in a tab right now, or look it up later when you're home and not wandering the streets, or whatever it is you do when you listen to this. Um, the Mighty Boosh is a television series from the UK, and... It follows two main characters, uh, Vince Noir and Howard Moon. 
two just weird guys who are for some reason best friends and the first season zookeepers and their best friend is a shaman named Nabu um, and they also have a gorilla from the zoo who's their friend who can talk uh, named Balo and they every episode is pretty much just your standard oh we're a sitcom we have this random little slice of life problem like oh the head zookeeper who's really pretty doesn't like Howard oh, and Howard's like oh I wish she would like me and the first half of every episode starts off with that. Something very normal and relatable. And, oh, I wonder how these goofballs are going to get out of this mess. And the second half of the episode just goes so completely off the rails, it's like transitioning to another show or another dimension. It's like it accidentally took some shrooms and didn't realize it. But the game would be an RPG along the lines of Legacy of Goku. If you're familiar with that. Uh, okay. So you it'd be the standard, you kind of go level to level, you know, defeating enemies, getting collecting items, getting your getting your quests all figured out, but you'd have that built in ability to swap between different characters from the show. So the legacy of Goku two. And yes. then you can swap characters and it would actually be good. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you can, that's a good point. I should have pointed that out. Legacy of Goku two. But in Legacy of Goku two you could switch between different characters from the show to fight, you know, people or talk to other people, and sometimes you'd get unique dialogue options. This game would work the same way. It would also have, and the way I see this, this would be what kind of make it unique. On top, on top of having just the very unique characters and dialogue and worlds, you would be able to interact with the world in certain ways to solve puzzles or get around problems, such as crimping, oh, which God. in Mighty Boosh is equivalent to a sort of like group synchronized rap. No, that they describe it as a synchronized folk rap. Synchronized folk rap, yes. And then you would act, and actually there is a Game Boy game that did this very well where you had to unlock certain words and combine them to get certain areas or, or do certain things. And it was the Hamtaro games. <laughs> oh, God. So it's basically, it's inspired by handheld Toonami anime video games. Basically, yes. You know, that's actually perfect. And it would be amazing. That would be amazing. Yes. I would play that. You've sold me on, on the legacy of Boosh. So be. my game is a property that has been tried many times to varying degrees of failure. <laughs> I, and I know that it's not that popular these days anymore, but damn it, I want a good Superman game. It's long overdue. It is incredibly long overdue. And for a long time, there was the idea that, oh, just superheroes don't quite work, but then people proved Spider-Man wrong with Spider-Man 2. Oh my god. And <laughs> Batman wrong with the Arkham games. It's Superman's turn, right? <laughs> The way I would envision a Superman game, right, and I think we could finally do it with today's technology, is just make it a ridiculously big open world. Because the obvious answer is, oh, it's an open world game, you fly around Metropolis and punch bad guys and save civilians. But make it the entire DC Earth as an open world. And not the entire planet, because that'd be a little too big, but just several huge open world hubs. So Superman can fly up in the air, and if you fly up high enough, you go into the overworld... And then you can use your super hearing to pick out plot side quests and stuff. And, oh, it sounds like there's something happening in Gotham. You swoop down to Gotham, punch out a random thug, Batman goes, screw you, Superman, I had that. And then you keep fighting stuff. Right? Isn't this just Lego Batman 2, but bigger? Yes, Lego Batman 2, but bigger. And uh, treating it a little more like a flight game with, like, I don't know, almost like bullet-timey mechanics of making a fight more like a puzzle, because part of the problem with Superman is, well, he's a dude who's immune to most conventional forms of damage, so how do you make combat interesting? And the answer is approaching each piece of combat as more of a puzzle, where it's, okay, I may be fast, but I'm only so fast, and I need to 
do this and this and this before this happens. And so you'd zip around with your super speed and do that the best that you can. So the problem isn't these thugs are going to shoot me to death, because they're not, but it's stopping them before they get away with their loot or whatever. And so then when you do come into a situation where you're fighting Zod or somebody has Kryptonite or something like that, where you actually do have a health bar, then it's a change-up of the formula. And getting people who really care about the source material and getting somebody who can approach it with the same uh, passion that Rocksteady approached the Arkham games, you could make, finally, a good Superman game. And I think that would be really awesome to play. Uh, Great ideas, and I think that these different ideas... I mean, we had sci-fi space western, weird sort of psychological almost horror no psychological horror i would say any multitude of things miyazaki could be the spiritual successor to legacy of goku 2 we all didn't know we wanted or an open world game that you know where you get to play as an invincible man from another planet that shows that anything can be made into a video game with how wide of a breadth video games have so i think the fact that we all have so many great ideas is because video games are a flexible enough form that good adaptations can take many different many different forms in their own way. And I think it's because what makes a good adaptation, I mean, I'm curious to talk about, what you guys think makes a good adaptation. Yeah, so it's interesting to look at what different games do right. And part of the reason I gave this title to the episode um, is that the, the Batman Arkham games, I feel, and I'll, I think, I'd like to think most people agree, is a really, really great example is kind of the high bar when it comes to video game adaptations of things. It really is. It nails so many things. I mean, I the, I gave the name for the combat because the combat is so engaging, but yeah. it gets a lot of things right, so I'm curious like, what people think makes a good adaptation. Well, actually, it's I think it's very smart that you first off mentioned it's combat because that was one of the key defining mechanics and touch features of that game. That was one of the things that made it so enjoyable. I think you can really break down, and we talked about this, I think, in our first episode, but there, you can kind of break video games down into two big categories in terms of how it functions. One is the mechanics, and the other is like the style, the art, the design, the immersion, things like that. So on top of you know the Arkham games just kind of really nailing that Batman tone of you know the, the noir, the, the intensity, the, the mystery, the, the dark and sort of psychological horror to it my favorite moments in the arkham games are the moments where it's just alfred tells you to go do something and then you get control of batman again and you just run down a straight hallway with your cape building behind you and danny elfman <laughs> score plays those are my favorite moments of the game of just running down a hallway with the danny elfman score that's when i most feel like batman while i'm playing yeah, so so they nailed they nailed the feeling right they nailed the magical feeling you get you would get by reading the comics or watching the show but the other part of a game is that it is a game. It has code, it has mechanics, it has a machine behind it. And so I think what Arkham did really well is they identified, well, what makes Batman Batman? And one of the things that really makes Batman Batman is the fact that he's a Kung Fu master. He, his fighting style is just, it's, it's almost beyond expert. It's, it's so formidable, and it's his primary form of taking down bad guys. So what they did is let's take this key aspect of his character and of Batman and what makes him cool and let's build that into the game in a way that is really cool. So they basically found a way to build a mechanic around a core part of this you know, comic book or even TV show, whatever you're going to base it off of. Well, and I think what's really strong there is, and what you're saying is that they took the spirit of the Batman stories instead of 
the letter of the Batman stories. I right, mean, they didn't exactly copy is what you're saying. Yeah, to go back, I mean, to go off to a bad adaptation really briefly, uh, if we go back all the way to Sega Genesis, there was a Aladdin uh, adaptation that I played uh, weirdly yes. a lot. But I did like, too, actually. A lot of the adaptations in this one, I'm just picking out of thin air because I remember it, but a lot of adaptations at that time were just a reskin platformer or just a reskin version of another game. And it was like, hey kids, you liked this story. Here, we'll vaguely follow the story, but we won't care really what it was about. While a lot of games that we would probably say are good adaptations go for the feeling of being Batman first. Or if we're going to go to like Knights of the Old Republic, the feeling of being a Jedi is more important than following the story of Luke Skywalker as he defeats the Empire. Because they completely go hundreds of years before that. But thousands, I think. Thousands, yeah. yeah. And so the feel of what you want from the story is more important than the literal story. That's a very good point, actually. That's, I didn't think about that, but so many of those games from like the 90s that were just reskinned movies of, versions of Disney movies or other movies were literally just a platformer, but mm-hmm. we just... Yeah, it was just it, trying to take the story and cram it into a box. Yeah, we just gave it Lion King, we gave it Aladdin, we gave it Little Mermaid or whatever it needs to be. Ah, uh, the Harry Potter series. I actually, the first Harry Potter game was surprisingly solid. I mean, like... I remember really enjoying it. It was it was a lot of fun. They actually really nailed the concept of, like... Because at the time, everybody wanted to just Harry Potter storyline, right? It like, was printing do, money. Yeah, no, and... And specifically, you wanted the feel of being a wizard, but specifically you wanted to be Harry Potter. Right. So, like, they nailed the feel, but it was still a platformer type thing. And then uh, the later games were the later games. <laughs> <laughs> One contradiction to they should get the spirit above the just fitting it into their box is the Lego games. If we look at the Lego games, all of them very strictly, or a lot of them, if they're based off of a movie, pretty strictly follow the plot of the thing they're based off of. And they follow the same format. And they follow the same format where it's kind of platformy, kind of puzzly, so it checks off a lot of the same boxes as earlier, lower quality adaptations. But they do put that extra effort into catching the spirit of the dialogue and the story and the characters. And so they put that effort somewhere different. And so you know when you pick it up, you're getting a Lego game, and you're getting that kind of feel. You're not necessarily getting the feel of the original IP, but you are getting a strong character story. Especially since a lot of the Lego games that are adapted from movies are movies that most of us have seen time and time and time and time and time again. They're almost iconic. Because I think you nailed it. What Lego does is they they capture the, the... the spirit and enjoyment we get from those films and most of the iconic ones like Indiana Jones for example it's because we've seen it over and over again we know the scenes they're they're famous they're they're in the cultural zeitgeist right of these of these famous films we either grew up with or just were old enough to see wow that's incredible but then they add their little legoy quirks so it's like oh i'm watching this thing that i've seen time and time again and and here are all the moments that are familiar to me and that i remember and make me feel nostalgic but they're slightly different. They have that added charm of, of the, the you know the Lego humor, the heads falling off at random moments, but yeah. being like, oh, I'll just stick this back on, sort of humor. Well, and it's almost like Greek plays, where you'd go in and you'd see the same play over and over again, but you'd go, see, like, the audience knew the twists, but they went in to see that those people perform it. And so you're going in basically to see the Lego troupe perform your favorite <laughs> That's story. actually a really good way of thinking That's about it. That's a good way of putting it. Because uh-huh. that idea... That's not just Greek plays. Mm-hmm. We That's still just plays. S- well, I, my favorite Lego moment is in the Lego Harry Potter when uh, Cedric Diggory's father goes over to him, you know, his body, 
and then he just pulls out the instructions of putting back together a Lego person <laughs> and looks sad. Uh, I think one thing that the Lego series gets actually that's interesting to touch on in this, like you know, the immersion and capturing the same feeling and everything like that is especially when they did Star Wars and Indiana Jones and those more classic, slightly older movies, is it kind of feels like playing with action figures and it captures that same childlike sense of wonder of like, especially looking, I'm thinking specifically of Star Wars, how, and I guess all of them do this, where you can go back and replay levels with different characters you've unlocked who weren't necessarily in that level. And that seems very much like the being a kid making up your own Star Wars story of like, oh, Boba Fett's gonna throw Han Solo in the Sarlacc pit, but oh no, Obi-Wan Kenobi showed up! What? And, you know, and then Darth Vader flies in on his TIE fighter, and so right. he can get that sort of fun kid-making-up-stupid-stories. Right, well, no, Timmy, I mean, Obi-Wan Kenobi died. He's like, fuck you, Dad. Yeah. <laughs> Let me have this. <laughs> so so the, the immersion and the, getting the, the style and the feeling is really important. KOTOR lets you know what it feels like to be a Jedi. Uh, you know, the Lego games give you that sort of spin on things and Arkham gives you the feeling of being Batman but I think uh, what we touched on but I want to look a little bit further in is the mechanics and how do we make the mechanics also match because part of the problem with those like 90s Disney platformers is that it didn't always fit especially like Lion King playing as a quadruped trying to platform didn't always work out great yeah I've heard of the giraffe level yeah oh supposedly uh, if, if you were to chart where players fall off, there'd just be a huge wall at the giraffe level. Another, actually, another game which really nails the whole mechanics, really m- naturally flowing with the essence of the game, is Marvel Ultimate Alliance. Absolutely. Yes. Ooh, that was a fun game. And I know, I, I actually really had never even heard of this game or knew of its existence until I met you. I remember right, you invited me over to hang out with a few of your friends. I don't remember who exactly. Um, we played Marvel Ultimate Alliance, and me for the first time. I had no knowledge of the Marvel Universe, so I painted Captain America as this, like, total red-blooded, like, anti-commie guy. It turns out he's, like, the exact opposite. He's <laughs> pro-commie? Uh, he's not anti-commie. But, um, he's just pro-America. He's pro-America, exactly. Yeah. But I mean, one of the things I le- learned about, though, is I like this. This is really cool, and this is really fun. I kind of want to get more into Marvel now after playing this. And part of that is because the whole idea behind... The Marvel Comics Adventures is it's usually one or multiple heroes teaming up to fight some bad guy or solve some problem, and that involves using their powers. And Marvel Ultimate Alliance, what it did is it basically said, yeah, we're going to give you a set of heroes to play. They each have different, you know, fighting powers, which do different things. Some are ranged, some are close, some are area of effect, some are buffs, some are attacks, whatever. And just, we're going to let loose, you know? There's no real way to win this in terms of you have to play this person. It's you play who you want. And you get to step into the shoes of that hero that you've always wanted to be. I'm pretty sure I spent like 80% of the game playing Spider-Man. <laughs> because that's who I really want to be. But that's, I think, was a great example of like... It's kind of similar to Batman, I guess. But in the same way, it's like, we're just going to give you a sandbox to play in. And we're going to give you certain barriers. And it's up to you how you decide to get around them. Do you want to shoot webs? Do you want to hit things with a giant fist? Do you want to fire magic bolts? It's up to you. And that, I think, was very well executed. Where's our Marvel Ultimate Alliance 3? <laughs> That's a good question. I'd play it. Well, and I think that that touches on something else interesting. I'm sorry, it's not mechanics, Grant, but... Uh, we'll go back to mechanics. I think one of the things that Marvel has is they have a lot of characters and a lot of world build-up, and so it's not just, you know, this is the Fantastic Four game, or this is that one time Wolverine did that one thing. You're pulling from the world, and so it's giving you more of the world than 
a specific one storyline. This is a this man, this monster game. I don't know. That would be terrible. But I think a lot of really strong... What I'm getting at is a lot of really strong adaptations just give you more of the world you love. Um, I think one thing that could be interesting in Jeff's fake Firefly game is that you're not playing as the Firefly crew. It's not that you're just trying to extend the show you already love, but you're getting another look at the world. KOTOR, you're going thousands of years before. If you're looking at Telltale games, Walking Dead, you're following a mostly completely different group of survivors, even though you run into other people, so you're seeing a greater part of the apocalypse. It can just give you an extra bit of the world. And I think that's something that adaptations have evolved past recently. Because even as far back as, like, two generations ago, we had, like, the Lord of the Rings games on, like, the PS2 and GameCube, which were actually pretty good games. I remember playing one a while back, and it wasn't bad. Yeah, no, they were... The King was fun. Yeah, no, they were fun. They were were pretty good games, but they very much fit into that mold of, like, the GameCube PS2 adaptation, where they would just plug plug a scene from the movie into the game... And then suddenly it would stop being live action, start being 3D, and you'd play a level based on that scene in the movie. Yeah, I think what one thing I'm noticing is coming up a lot is, and this is something that we mentioned previously in other episodes, is very unique to video games. And I think what makes video game adaptations so good is there's that element of interactivity. You know, uh, movies and books and comics and what and TV shows, to a certain degree, you are the passive observer, right? You know, you can engage with it emotionally and and cognitively, but you can't actually be a part of it. And the thing that makes video games so cool, especially adaptations, is it gives you that chance to be a part of it. Whether that's a matter of we built a mechanic system around it so you can actually punch people in the face as Batman, or if it's we gave you another part of this world that we built previously that now you get to explore that that you never knew existed. I think the best example of that that we may ever see in a lot of ways is The Witcher. I can't say that I've read any of the Witcher books, but <laughs> they're in Polish, you know. You can find oh, translations, yeah. but they were originally Polish. Okay, so. I was under the impression that they were easily accessible. Oh, oh. no, I'm sure there are translations available, but just, it's, that I feel kind of weird yeah. knowing it was... A vast yeah. minority of people who play the Witcher have read the Witcher, that's, or that's know really that true. the books exist in the first place. Yeah, that's true, but... My point is they created, they looked at the world that this Polish author had created and said, this is cool, we want to do more with this. And then they gave you these huge, immense storylines which were filled with political intrigue and magic and danger and moments of classic swashbuckling. And then they added little side quests which were just bite-sized chunks of what made that story so great for them as the developers. And I think the best possible example that you can find is The Witcher. They got mechanics that work, they put a bunch of budget into bringing the world to life, and just had fun with it. And that's the main thing. What's especially interesting about The Witcher is, since it was a a book series, I mean, they probably had a pretty rich description of the world and the environments and the people and things like that and the rules, but Geralt's fighting style in terms of how he uses his swords and how he uses his magic is very well defined. Like, they've built out a whole fighting system and a yeah. magic-using system in those games. But I imagine the book really didn't give them that much to... It, it didn't box them in very much. It probably said, yeah, Geralt uses this kind of magic, or yeah, Geralt uses this kind of sword fighting. But the rest was up to CD Projekt Red to just kind of create. I would assume as much, but you never really know. The other thing that I really like about The Witcher, um, and that I... Again, I also have not actually watched... Or, sorry... I have not read the books, um, 
but I was I ha I am very much under the impression that the books are actually a collection of short stories, in in a way not like short short, but like little chunks of like, this is what happened and then it moves on. And, like and an adult encyclopedia brown. Yeah. <laughs> With more drinking and boobs. Yes. <laughs> and dragons. that sounds great. <laughs> But no, I think vignettes. Yeah, vignettes are definitely the way to describe. Like, it just these little chunks of this is the world and this is what Geralt's doing. CD Projekt Red did a really good job of capturing that concept, too. Mm -hmm. Of just, like, within a single game. So in The Wild Hunt, for instance, you have all those little chunks yeah. and so forth. In the, like, smaller stories that you can do as little side quests... Um, side quests that kind of come back through a few times over. So, you know, one thing that you do... For instance, at one point I saved a guy from drowning and he showed up way later as kind of an asshole that I ended up killing. It was great. <laughs> but, like... <laughs> Circle of life. There yep. you go. A lot of what we're talking about is how, like, the, the mechanics can match, you know, something that's true to the, the original source material. The, the world and the, the exploration can match something true to the source material, but there actually have been quite a few games that do do that. They give you the world, they give you the characters, and they let you explore, and the mechanics match. They align with what maybe the characters or the, the whatever from the original source material can do, but it still sucks. See, well, what I was going to say is, like, I kept, I, I kept trying to talk about, oh, well, let's talk about the mechanics, but I think what, what I'm really finding is the mechanics don't matter as much as long as they kind of fit and they're well done. And it seems like that immersion and that feeling and that, that like texture of the world you're supposed to be in is more important than that. Because, like, yes, Arkham's combat is really, really great and mechanically really great, but part of what makes it such a perfect fit is that it fits the feeling. Because it's a very analytical combat style. You approach a group of goons like a puzzle. He's got a shock rod. He's got a, a riot shield. There's a gun, you know, there's a gun case over there. They might run and try to grab a gun. So you're, in, even while you're in the thick of it and just pressing buttons, you're still in that mind space of I'm sure if Batman were real, that's how he would approach a situation. Almost like a almost like a Sherlock Holmesy type thing of stopping and seeing everything and going, "Okay, this is how I do it." And then taking them apart step by step. So really that's more of an immersion thing. So do the mechanics matter as long as they're well done? And when the mechanics are poorly done, even if they fit, is is that, you know, really what matters? Well, I'm curious, Connor, what games are you thinking of where the world fits and the character fits, but the game itself isn't good? One example here, I know I might be stealing it from the notes, but I did play it with Superman 64. Oh, you poor thing. <laughs> I know, I, but it's... When you, when you think about it, it had everything that a good Superman game kind of really needed. The mechanics were just terrible. It was... So, yeah, it was just either poorly executed or I think... I think that's part of it. I think the well, poor execution is part of it, and there might be other ways in which it can reach this end, but I think what mattered is that it broke that immersion. So, having never played Superman 64, um, what about the mechanics were broken? Like, it just you, you didn't... can't just say broken. Yeah, it's, it's hard to describe. It was just that controlling Superman didn't work. It was weird and swingy, and your flight can... Like, the first level is just trying to fly through some rings, and just with how hard it is to get him going the way he's supposed to, it's borderline impossible. Um, Superman shouldn't have that much trouble flying. No, he shouldn't. He's flying Superman. should feel effortless. Yeah. Okay, so it was just that it was a pain in the ass to actually do what yeah. it was you were supposed to do. Well, I was going to offer a more contemporary example of a similar issue being okay. Aliens Colonial Marines. That is an ex That's excellent example. A much, yeah, That's a, a much better example. I, uh, I was one of the unfortunate few who decided, you know what? 
I'm excited enough for this game that I'm gonna buy it. <laughs> and I bought it, and I played about three hours of it, and I brought it back. Yeah. I, it was so, so unbelievable. I didn't awful. play Aliens Colonial Marines, so educate me. What exactly was wrong with it? I know it was, I know it was a shit show, but what exactly was wrong with it? Uh, clunky shooter mechanics. Uh, just, <laughs> just anything you can think of, it had it. It had bad hitboxes, aiming was weird, the cover system that they included did not work correctly, or... Maybe I'm thinking of something else. There might not have been a cover system. I've mostly blocked it out. Uh, I've seen I've seen videos of just xenomorphs just casually walking right past you. Yeah, yeah. The AI is unbelievably awful. Endless glitches and texture problems and clipping. But there were there were just occasional moments, very brief moments, where I said, "Oh, that that is that something?" And then no, it was covered in more shit. So it was. It, it, it was like shoveling shoveling through a pigsty full of shit, trying to find the diamond. And then there's only, no diamond. Only to get, like, a very small lump of coal. And be like, okay, well, it isn't shit. <laughs> It'll keep me warm something. tonight. Yeah. A lot of time and effort, maybe, one day. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I think what we're saying here is that we want a good adaptation to either let us be our favorite character or let us spend, or, you know, our favorite, be or be in our favorite world or spend time with our favorite characters, just to... To have that time and a clunky game is distracting you so much it's like if you were going to hang out with your friend who you haven't seen in years and then clippy from you know microsoft word kept popping up and saying <laughs> i see you guys have ordered pizza did you remember to order pizza and it's like no clippy i did <laughs> when the game gets in the way of the world Instead of enhancing the world and letting you dive deeper into the world because it's a game, that's when it's a bad adaptation. And there's something that adaptations do have to do specifically. Because I know we talked about this before. In video games, you're either playing someone else's role or you're playing a version of yourself in that game, right? But the whole point of an adaptation is all of that has already been established. Even if you're playing your own unique person within this world, like the Firefly world or the Star Wars world, whatever it needs to be... The things that they have established need to remain constant, and they need to give you a way to access that. So it's exactly what you were saying, where it just when, when clunky mechanics or just poorly designed mechanics, or if it doesn't work in a way that aligns with the way this world is supposed to be, the way this experience is supposed to be, the way facing down a xenomorph is supposed to be, it, it just pulls you out of it. It distracts yeah. you from the experience, and it, it ruins the whole thing. And the thing with Colonial Marines is it wasn't scary. It wasn't at all. That's the whole point of Aliens. It's the fear. Yeah. So as long as the mechanics are done well, how much does that matter as long as there's the immersion and the, the feeling of being in the world? If, you know, I, I say, oh, stick slap Arkham Combat on everything, which obviously doesn't quite fit for everything, but if we were to make, like, a Doctor Who game, give it Arkham Combat, if the story and everything else made it feel like Doctor Who and yet it had Arkham Combat... Would it still be a good Doctor Who game? They both don't use guns. They both don't use guns. <laughs> Very true. And they're both super smart. But doc- the Doctor is not physical. <laughs> no, the Doctor doesn't usually hit people with the force of, you know, a lightning bolt striking an oak tree, but... But what if you could find a way to take the same just feeling of Batman mechanics, which is that analytical approach to combat, not necessarily hitting people or shooting people. But diffusing a violent situation. Yeah, he's got the sonic screwdriver. He has, you know, assistance. He has other things that pop in and pop out. I'm sure you could find a way to finagle it to work, actually. Well, I think what we're asking for is things that are not directly opposed to the feel. 
So um, you wouldn't make Batman a shooter game. You wouldn't make Batman a shooter game. You wouldn't make Doctor Who a brawler. Yeah. I guess that makes sense. So, you're asking about mechanics that work for the feeling of whatever is being adapted, but the game's still not being successful. Uh, there are two examples that I would like to bring up, which I can think of off the top of my head. One is the Deadpool game, uh-huh. which, from the few people I know who played it, said that it did a great job of nailing what Deadpool is. You know, he was irreverent, he was crass, he had a great time shooting himself in the head when Cable was droning on about something, and all that fun Deadpool stuff. Game just didn't do that well. There's no talk of a sequel, uh, nothing has come of it. It's The mechanics were solid, but not exceptional. That was the vibe I got. My yeah. favorite screen from that is when you're, after you beat Wolverine, you're standing on top of Wolverine, getting ready to punch him, and it's like, press X to punch Wolverine, press B to be a bitch, <laughs> to just stop hitting him. And so you can just keep, it's like the end of God of War 3, you can just keep punching Wolverine as long as you want, yeah. and every time you punch, Deadpool has a new, and this is for Bam, as he yeah. keeps hitting him. Exactly. It's that kind of thing. It nailed the feeling of being Deadpool, but because the mechanics never really excelled at anything, the game never took off. So another example that I can think of is The Amazing Spider-Man. Like the new one, the based on the Andrew Garfield movie? Yes, yes. The first one. The second one I heard made some improvements, but the first one, from everything I have been told, it was a poor man's Arkham Asylum. Really? And that I, I very much mean that. It was so a it was, poor man's Arkham Asylum. So it was Shattered Dimensions. No, not not quite that poor. Maybe a lower middle class version. Uh, but the point is, you know, when you talk about great Spider-Man games, The Amazing Spider-Man is not one that comes to mind. Pretty much Spider-Man 2 and Web of Shadows. Yeah, Spider-Man 2 and Web of Shadows. Done. Shattered Dimensions deserves a mention for although some you, of the fun things that it did. But Although, you know what? It's kind of along the same lines of the Deadpool game. Because I, I pre-ordered Shattered Dimensions, and I played it as soon as it came out. Because yeah. I was convinced it was going to be great. And it kind of was. It, yeah. had, it had the same feeling of, you know, some uh, in a lot of the cases, they really nailed the persona of Spider-Man. Yeah. It had, it had lots of great dialogue. You had lots of great moments. It felt like the Spider-Man world, but something didn't add up. I, I wasn't totally having fun. But so, a lot of it didn't really feel very Spider-Man-y. Yeah. Something about it they missed. Yeah. And I wish I knew. It wasn't an open world. I think that may, that may have been it, too, is it just... They, they had you going straight. They had you on rails almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they limited your ability to really do what Spider-Man does, which is adapt and you know swing around and change the fighting environment. He's a very smart fighter when you think about it. Yeah. His whole thing is he's slippery and fast and can react instantly. So there wasn't too many cases of that except the noir ones. And the noir ones were the best parts of the game. Well, and I think it's interesting because in a way we think of adaptations being games that we ask less of. Like, it's the thing you shove in a box, you get down a kid's throat for Christmas because <laughs> their grandma's going to buy it. Yeah. But I think, really, what we're saying is that we are asking more of adaptations than we might in IP. Like, an IP, we want them to create an original world that's great. But if there was a game... Let's say they had made Colonial Marines good, but they had, like, at the same time, it was still not scary. Yeah. Let's say, you know, it had been flashy lights and... like A let's generic say, Call of Duty clone. Yeah. Well, actually, let's say, like, imagine of Colonial Marines as Overwatch with a storyline, where you still had the same bright, shiny colors because they just completely missed the point. 
when we create an IP, I swear I'm oh, going over this. Yeah, so so it was a good game, but yeah. it wasn't. It didn't look like aliens. Yeah, yeah if mm-hmm. we create a good game and it doesn't look like aliens, if it's not an adaptation, great. They created their own world that has a little bit to do with aliens and kind of looks a little the same, but everything's the same story anyway. Great, but it's a different take. But when we say it's an adaptation, you go in expecting both a good game with quality mechanics and gameplay, but we are also expecting that experience. I think that's something that can kill games in general is when you approach it with a set of expectations and have all of those expectations shattered. And sometimes that can be good, but generally is not. For instance, like with the release of No Man's Sky, everyone had a huge set of expectations for what that game was going to be. Quite a bit of it was founded, I, I will be fair, but like... And then it didn't quite meet those expectations, and so now it's being painted as a terrible game, when it actually does quite a bit right. The problem with an adaptation is that we have even more expectations going into it, because we already have a concept of what that world should look like, what those characters should be like, how we envision ourselves like playing a game, even if we have no idea how games actually work. Everybody has their own idea of, oh, if I played a Batman game, I would run around and punch people in the face, right? And, and that's how I play Arkham. I mean, that's how most people... <laughs> which fits with most people's expectations, but if they had come out and done, like, I don't know, standard Call of Duty mechanics, for instance, yeah. but instead of shoot-shoot, it was punch-punch, it would be a little uh. weird, right? Uh. Right? So, basically, earlier on in this episode, we would, uh, I think Paige, you were specifically one to mention it, I could be wrong, but... We talked about adaptation games coming in a box. Mm-hmm. You know, you know the world, the game, the characters, the experience, it's all in a box. And it's the same box that the original source material was in. In Harry Potter, there's Hogwarts, there's magic, and it all does the exact same thing. But that can kind of be boring. We don't want to just have the exact same experience as the movie. If we wanted the same experience as the movie, we'd watch the damn movie. I think there's two components there. Uh, there's the quote-unquote box, which is sort of all the established stuff, right? Harry yeah. Potter game, there has to be Hogwarts. You know, it has to happen at Hogwarts. There has to be Harry. There has to be uh, Hermione. There has to be Ron. And things... Dumbledore should make an appearance. Yeah, there should be at least one but owl. Maybe yeah. you can go to these different parts of the of the castle or of Hogwarts that aren't featured in the films or in the books. Maybe you can talk to these people who don't normally, you know, you you only talk to in the books. What does the but, Hufflepuff common room look like? Yeah, what does the Hufflepuff <laughs> common room look like? You can go there, but yeah, so you can mm. you can change the box, right? The box can come in a different shape than it normally would, but it still has to follow the rules that come with the box. There's like you can go to the Hufflepuff common room, but Harry can't be Play doing something that Harry going. wouldn't do, or you yeah. can't do it in a way that wouldn't happen in the Hogwarts universe just because that doesn't fit. Yeah. That pulls the player out of the experience, it pulls them out of the immersion, and especially if it's if Harry uses magic in a way that is just annoying to use or overly complicated and doesn't Flipendo! Work. Flipendo! Flipendo! <laughs> it's the only spell I ever knew for the longest time just because of those games. But if, if it doesn't work for whatever reason, doesn't follow those rules, it, it fails. Well, especially because the people who are going to be playing the adaptations are people who love the source material. They know the rules. They yeah. know the rules better than anybody. Exactly. Why do adaptations have that reputation for being bad? Right? I mean, it's colonial worries. Well, here's the thing, though. It goes goes even further back than that. I want, like, for a very, very long time, the idea was just, oh, it's adapted from something. It's probably not going to be all that great. It's true. I think a large part of that actually 
goes back farther than video games themselves. I mean, like, that that concept has been around since movies were a thing and they were adapting books. And, True, the book, like, the book is always better. I mean, yeah. Have you seen some of the original Batman TV shows? They are fascinating. <laughs> so I think it, it technically goes back to that sort of concept. And then just as games came out, it's like, oh, hey, this movie's doing really well because movies suddenly much more popular than books, <laughs> right? Uh, let's make that into a video game and just get all the monies or, you know, it's... You it's s- a lazy cash grab. It's a lazy cash grab. And for a long time, video games were just kind of, I mean, let's face it, for a long time, most of them were just platformers and that sort of thing or, or text-based adventures just because very limited constructs of what you can do with the technology. I mean... Who doesn't love a reskinned Mario game, but it doesn't totally make sense for, I don't know, Doctor Who. (laughs) Home improvement. (laughs) I don't think it's just, you know, books to movies to video games. Like, we can also go back from movies to books. Like, how many novelizations are just like, and then Anakin Skywalker looked out on the vista and thought about when he killed the younglings. Like, well, I... God of War? I was about to say, do you remember in Galesburg? Yes. Yes, yes, we were in the uh, the bookstore that was our regular comic shop when we went to college, and Connor just grabbed off the shelf the book adaptation of God of War. (laughs) I turned to a random page. (sighs) And literally, for an entire page, it was basically just Kratos intense detail of the and then Kratos murdered this man and he murdered him this way then he turned to the other thing and he murdered it as well and he did it in this way and then he murdered the third one in a slightly similar way to the first but did this afterward it was like oh my god this is awful <laughs> well and that's the thing is people do not think about the strengths and weeks like when they're making a lazy adaptation from any form to any other form they're not thinking about the strengths and weaknesses of the medium they are thinking about how to get it out as quickly as possible to the people who will buy it. Um, I think some of the strongest ones are when the person has a strong knowledge of all the forms. Or if we mm. look at Scott Pilgrim, Scott Pilgrim was a comic that was kind of like a movie and a video game, and it was written very much with a love of both forms. And so it translated better because they took each form for what it was. It's the trifecta. Great, great book, great movie, great video game. That is how I think everyone should ever approach an adaptation notation of any kind like is you take the source material and you accept it for what it is and if it doesn't fit with what you need to turn it into you turn it into your own thing which i think is why we all totally love telltale as a company because in general they will take freaking anything and go we're gonna make that into a point and click adventure game including a first person shooter they took they did Borderlands, Borderlands and made Tales from the Borderlands and made me love it just as much as I love Borderlands. A rare example of a video game adaptation adaptation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Oh, I think Venice is called a spinoff. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> you just blew my mind. Sometimes, I like. I think we can all agree, sometimes the, the format is right, the ideas are right, and they probably even got devs who, who want to do it right, but due to laziness or lack of budget or whatever, we end up with something that is a subpar experience. 
I want to take a moment to talk about Cartoon Network Punch Time Explosion. <laughs> I can guarantee that was one that, like, and when I say guarantee, I mean uh. I'm just guessing. But, like, <laughs> deep in my heart, I feel like that was some guy, like, on the high end of the exec level going... Yeah, we're just gonna do this. Here's like basically no money. I think it was you budget. Get, you get two devs, one producer running everything, and then just like no communication. Yeah, that's probably what happened. It was probably a budget issue. For for those who are unfamiliar, because most people were unfamiliar because it flew under the radar. But for whatever reason, I held on hope for Cartoon Network Punch Time Explosion. I forgot that game ever happened. I, I really... I, I don't. Kn- I knew it was going to be terrible, but I was hoping against hope it would somehow magically be good because it was basically a Super Smash Brothers clone with Cartoon Network characters. Which, if done correctly, would be amazing. If done correctly, it would be perfect. I mean, if you could literally just reskin Smash Bros. for Cartoon Network. Uh, a Super Smash Brothers clone where you could play as Samurai Jack... And Dexter, Johnny Bravo, Finn and Jake, Powerpuff Johnny Bravo, Girls. the Powerpuff Girls, the Eds, the Eds. Oh God, the Eds! If you were to make it today, you could add in Mordecai and Rigby and the Crystal Gems and like those sort of newer characters, Gumball and Darwin. Like you could, mm-hmm. if you were to go with the whole spread, it would make a great game. And so the mechanics, at least in theory, are down, and it's a perfect fit. And it all works, and it really shouldn't be that hard to make work properly, but due to probably a lack of budget, it just didn't materialize. I don't know, that's one reason why adaptations are bad, but I don't know if there's more to it than that. I mean, I think it kind the budget kind of relates in the sense that if you're kind of on a budget, and let's face it, a lot of the a lot of Cartoon Networks games in particular, but any game that's based off of some IP like that, or they're just trying to get something out there that people will buy, whether it is on a tight budget... That leaves the developers, and in particular just the the producers behind it, well, with so much less time to actually, like, connect the experience with, kind of what we're the spirit of the game. And that's more what I was trying to say, is that it's not so much the budget as it is lack of communication, of just, like, you have that higher up saying, we got to get it out now, and the dev's going, it's not ready, right? And then you just have to sort of consolidate into whatever is technically functional, that sounds like how software works. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking as someone who tries to make software work. Yeah. Well, and I think part of it is also just, I am guessing that when you have a adaptation that isn't something like Arkham, that is not your A team. That is probably not even your B team if you have enough developers. Because and if you know Cartoon Network, it, it, their A team is their B team. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. But, I mean, if you're a developer Mm -hmm. who has enough clout to do interesting, cool products, you are moving to interesting, cool products, and you are showing your resume off, and you will find... I mean, I don't know the video game world, but just from the software world, you will find the interesting products, and you will find the places where you can do good things. The best you could probably hope to get on a project that everyone's just shooting out the door is a dev who will be promising and will be interesting when they've got a bigger portfolio. But Ken Levine's not, or Ken Levine's not going to be working on Punch Time Explosion. I mean... I'm not sure if I want Ken Levine yeah. to be working on Punch yeah, Time Explosion. No, I don't think that'd be a good fit, man. I don't think that would work. Masahiro Sakurai is not going to be working on Punch Time well, Explosion. the team right, for Project yeah. M isn't going to be working on Punch Time Explosion. I wish they would, but those aren't going to be the people that... I wish the team for Project M would work on Smash Bros. Yeah. But the... 
the teams that have a lot of skills are probably jockeying to get themselves on better projects, so you've probably got a lot of new devs, or you've got a lot of devs who are, I mean, they can get by, but they're not necessarily the best. I mean, if we have anybody out there listening who worked on games that you aren't exactly proud of, there's no shame there. You needed to buy a sink like everybody else. But <laughs> So I don't think, you know, the A team that's writing the new Mass Effect will also be, you know, writing Punch Time Explosion. Yeah, and I mean, let's just try to really quickly deconstruct Punch Time Explosion. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if there's enough there to deconstruct, but I'm with you. Well, here's what it has, right? It has the Cartoon Network characters. Yep. It probably has original voice lines um, and jokes for those characters. Those characters probably have their own unique movesets or things that would be unique to that character and make you want to play them. And it has them all interacting together. I mean, when you, when you really think about it in terms of what it has and how they designed it, it should have worked. But I think what happened was they just kind of said, all right, here are all the characters. They, all, they say funny things and they fight. Here you go. And they just gave it to players who were like, well, that's a cool idea, but what do I really do with it? They just kind of gave us something to work with. It was almost like a sandbox or, or, or like a, just a, I don't know. A sandbox, but somebody pooped in it earlier. <laughs> well, it's almost more like they gave you a 3D printer missing a few parts. Exactly. The thing with punch time, Super Punch Time Explosion or whatever it was, something was missing in between to really make it flow all together. Like, you know, in Mortal Kombat, one of the cool things is when two fighters enter into the, the main stage, they have unique things to say to each other. And the porting that over to Injustice 2, I'm excited. Exactly, yeah. but it adds that, that flavor and that immersion of like, ooh, this is a real fight between, you know, uh, Cassie Cage and her dad or whatever, and they'll make certain jokes. But in Punch Time Explosion, I get the feeling, and I'll admit, I didn't play it. None of us did. <laughs> For good reason. So maybe I'm wrong. But I get the feeling that wasn't there. I get the feeling it didn't feel like Gumball was fighting Johnny Bravo. I got the feeling it was just this Gumball character and a Johnny Bravo character fighting. There wasn't that interesting interaction that I think fans would expect from two cartoon characters from two different worlds meeting and fighting and coming together. What you probably got was Gumball and Johnny Bravo were just both fighting each other, but it probably almost felt like they didn't really even notice each other. It was just they were both fighting this other person who they could have cared less who that person was. But like, no, the whole point is it's Johnny Bravo and Gumball. They have to have something to say to each other. There has to be some weird, goofy dynamic that goes on. Johnny Bravo would definitely hit on Gumball's mom. Yes, he would. Oh, Johnny my. Bravo's my friend, and Gumball's my friend. They should be friends while punching each other in the face. I just want to be able to say, say the phrase, 1v1 me, final destination, pearl only, no items. <laughs> <laughs> so, going back a little bit, I think with Paige, you mentioned, well, okay, these games aren't working as well because they don't have budget, they don't have time, but also it's kind of the B or C or D teams making them. So why do these hotshot talents, with a few exceptions, obviously like Arkham or Ultimate Alliance or KOTOR or whatever, why do these hotshot talents not want to make adaptations? I think there are a couple possible reasons. One... You ha if you've made it enough that you get to choose what projects you're working on, if you do really love something, let's say you loved Superman, and you were given the chance to work on Superman 64, would you want to work on a game that you know is going to probably be underfunded and underdeveloped, 
that will not be a cool Superman experience, or would you rather spend your time elsewhere instead of just, you know, undervaluing something you love? Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, I would actually say, like, because of those exceptions, like Arkham, we can point to those as probably being those 18 people mm-hmm. who are, I'm sure are all fans of Batman, right? Like, and I'd be really curious to talk to some of those people and go, how were you able to get the chance to do this because was it you started with the idea we're gonna make a Batman game and then just fought to get the rights or was it we made this really cool brawler and then they approached us with Batman and we were like fuck yes and adapted it so that kind of transitions into what I was kind of going to say is I think there's this stigma not even just amongst video games but just when it comes to art forms movies books comic books of we kind of tend to put more value on coming up with something original and creative and unique rather than kind of perfecting something that's already been done. I mean, people, I mean, think about it. There's so much potential in all these existing IPs out there, whether it's a book or a movie or a comic, whatever, that if someone with, you know, a, with a passion, if not for the exact source material for something like it, with a passion to get into it, could just, you know, take the time to create a vision and really put work into it, you can make so many things so great and so much better as an adaptation or as even just as an improvement already. Like, take some of the, like, take the Lord of the Rings games that came out that were pretty much just a summary of the movies. You just kind of got railroaded through the movie plot. I mean, what if someone just took that and was like, no, I really, really like Lord of the Rings. I think you can do this right. There's got to be a way to do this. And they, they took that, that, that work ethic and the passion and the vision and made it work. I think just, I don't know, creatively, I think we generally tend to not place as much value on that. That's not as impressive, right? I think people see that as, well, I mean, you just, you just polish something that was already kind of worked on. Well, I mean, how many times have you heard people, like, put up a list of the top grossing movies of the last couple of years and point out how many of them are not original, their sequels or their remakes, and just decry, like, we're not thinking of new things, we're not taking chances on new things. Exactly, and I think there's a, there's a bit of a fine line between, you know, making improving something and perfecting it versus honestly just you know, just continuing it for a cash grab or whatever. But at the same time, there is value in that. I don't think we tend to see that. We tend to value creativity and new things, and that's seen as more challenging and more rewarding rather than taking... If you take... I think people tend to see it as, well, you started with something. Someone else made this. You just kind of started working on it. It wasn't that difficult, right? I don't necessarily agree with that. I'm just saying I think that's the stigma. We're, We're starting to enter an era when it comes to the movies where, I mean, something something like Avengers wouldn't have been possible even 10 years ago, yeah. right? Are we kind of entering that same thing with games? Because there is that stigma of the video game tie-in. But I would argue, and I don't know if you guys agree, the, the stigma is kind of dissipating because I think the era of the cheap tie-in game is sort of starting to end. There was no Zootopia tie-in game. Yeah. There, there wasn't even a Frozen or a Tangled tie-in game. Like, the cheap kids' movie tie-in games are kind of gone now. Was there a Big Hero 6 tie-in game? I don't think so. Yeah. Mm, there were. There um, were? Okay. So but that one fits a little better for it, so it kind of makes sense. Big Hero 6 had one, Frozen had one. Did it? Yeah. No, okay. these were DS titles. Um, oh, that's why oh. I didn't notice. So, okay. the, big, the big thing is that for the, like, sort of cheaper tie-ins, a lot of the times... Another thing I'm going to point out that I'm sure none of you thought of. Oh, wait, you're going to take my point. Apps. Oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah, you're taking my point. That's, that's the oh. big and thing. Cheap flash the, the, the cheap, cheap tie-in app the now. Cheap ta- tie-in yeah. app. Specifically, free-to-play. 
because free to play is a huge seller. You go, yep. but mom, it's free, right? And so then, you know, oh, well, my kid loves Frozen. Yeah, sure, play the free Frozen game. That's fine. And then you get to a point where it's like, well, I can't get past this because they don't have enough. I, I haven't played these, but like, icicles. We'll, we'll say, like, but I don't have enough <laughs> magical snow, frozen points. I, I don't have enough snowflake power, mom. I need to, I, like, I need to build up my snowflake power, but I can only do this amount per day, or I can pay like five dollars. And after enough, like, crying and complaining, you buy the five dollar thing. And, and then, you know, if you want a really nice way to make a cheap buy in towards a movie, you do a free to play probably mobile-based game. I'd never thought about that before. Well, no, 100%. It's huge. So in other words, the cheap tie-ins have not gone away. They've it's just evolved. I think what's interesting is I, did, I had not considered that because I had written in my notes here that like we're, kind of, we're seeing an increase in high-quality adaptations. Looking at all these high-quality adaptations, a lot of them are recent. Arkham games are recent. Ultimate Alliance, recent-ish. Uh, the Lego games keep coming out. Telltale's exploded lately. Witcher 3, even Stick of Truth and Fractured Butthole and things like that. Um, yes, I said butthole. Yes, we're all going to laugh. <laughs> Can I just say thank you, Matt and Trey? <laughs> it is so fun to, like... To say butthole at work? Uh, yeah, at the unnamed game retailer I work for, it is so wonderful to go... Would you like to fracture? Like, would you like to pre-order the fractured butthole? Guess what? You get a free stick of truth in your fractured butthole. Do you seriously get a free stick of truth in your fractured butthole? Of course I you do. I love being able to say that. So we're getting really good quality stuff like that. I, you would think good adaptations are becoming more common, but I'm curious: are they becoming more common, or is it just like a? I don't know what the technical psychological term is for it, but no. the ratio effect. No. I think the word you're looking for is a winnowing. <laughs> I suppose. Because on the one hand, we do get really good stuff, but then yeah, there is still like... What it is is you're getting separate demographics. Like yeah. the, the gaming demographic has become too huge and now they're like becoming too sphere. So we've got like your true core gamer thing where you're spending... Like your classic concept of gaming where you drop 60 bucks for a new title, for instance, as opposed to the free-to-play titles. Um, and that's kind of where I think it, all the like cheap tie-ins are going is because you can actually fund a pretty solid free-to-play title with less than you need to do a like even $30 game, right? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Where it's like most moms don't want to go out and buy like a physical thing for their kid because the kid's going to lose it and so forth and I mean, there are touchy points there, and there are different families and so forth, but generally speaking, you give your, the kid the iPad for the day, and they mess around with it, and they're like, wee! And they buy a touch of, bunch of in-app purchases on your credit card. Yep. Yeah. Or even then, you can limit their time more easily, because they can only play with your phone when you are not at work, and when you are watching them. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, part of it is just, you know, plain and simple, we have more options now, in terms of technology, mm -hmm. in terms of marketing. Uh, strategies to hit certain people. When you think about the games that we consider the classic bad adaptations of just slap a movie title on it, make it a basic platformer game, you've got an adaptation. There wasn't really any other way to do it at that time. I remember all those Disney games that came out, Aladdin, Lion King, um, and some of the other just randomly movie-based games. I played the crap out of the Mulan one. 
Yeah, you just but you kind of that's kind of all you that's kind of all you had. It's like, yeah, we're gonna make a game. It's gonna be a basic platformer, you know, it's gonna be the plot's already written, right? You know, the characters already exist, the art already exists, we just poured it over. There was no option for we're gonna make this a free to play option where you can add on other features separately. You know, there there was no mobile app device that you carried in your pocket which could run such small you know operations very quickly and very effectively where it's like why we waste our time building out a whole game that's you know built on a cartridge and goes with a console and needs it to have its own packaging and, and marketing and all this stuff and we can just literally release this the people we need to sell it to are going to see it we don't have to pay for marketing we don't have to pay for packaging we don't have to pay for promotion we'll just roll out the game and throw it in this list where people are going to see it and we'll make our money back so I think we pretty much we pretty much nailed it. It's it's not an exact thing, but uh, there are elements that we need. I think we had a pretty good discussion here. Uh, I want to move on to uh, the molasses round. What happened to the lightning round? It used to be the lightning round, but it always takes us for fucking ever. So it's the molasses round now. Oh, that makes oh, sense. So yeah. today we're gonna play a game. Yay! Yay! <laughs> Someone is going to name a property that they feel would make a pretty good video game adaptation. Then, uh, let's say the person on your left will... Or, I guess other people could jump in. These always turn into fucking free-for-alls anyway. Jump in with a change you'd make to the gameplay or setting it in a certain style or whatever. Some way to adapt it. That would make it horrible. I'm gonna go first. <laughs> Jeff, how would you ruin a supernatural video game? Oh, you're taking my supernatural Ooh, video game? Supernatural? <laughs> um... I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go the route of a uh, so bad it would probably be good uh-huh. route. I want to turn Supernatural into a Japanese eroji. It's a sex game. The oh. sex flash game. Oh, this is fun. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> you see Grant's expression right now. I, think, I, so I like how like Jeff think... has been on the internet long enough. He just goes straight for Wincest. Yeah, yeah. To be fair, though, notice me, Castiel Senpai. <laughs> Please notice me. <laughs> I think he nailed it, though. Yeah, yeah. no, that's perfect. That that's would be cause, a good cause start to this game. Because <laughs> it's perfect. Because it'd be not the kind of thing where when they said we're gonna make an erotic dating sim out of Supernatural. Oh yeah. Just enough people of the fan base would oh, be so into it. It would, oh, yeah. it would be sold on Kickstarter. Oh yeah, yeah, no, it would be it would be kickstarted in an hour. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, glorious train wreck of. <laughs> but it could also be good depending on who's doing it. Yeah, the hospital boyfriend just... guys to do it. Oh, yeah. Devolver Digital man. Whew. Yeah. All right, Jessica. I want to see Pacific Rim as a game. Okay. Screw it up. Sorry to take yours, Jessica, but I have no I have two ideas. One, one of the big things in Pacific Rim, um, one thing, uh, as you know, you have to have two pilots piloting mm -hmm. a Jaeger, so you better have a friend who you're really in sync with, because you're going to be hitting <laughs> every button at the same time, and none of them are preordained. Oh, God. So oh, God. it is an only co-op game. It is an only, only co-op co game. It's Ugh. an only co-op fighting game, where the kaiju are one guy, but the Jaegers <laughs> are two guys trying to coordinate. I can one-up that. Yeah. No couch co-op. Only online. <laughs> oh no. Random lobbies. Just sort of thinking maybe something along the lines of an endless like pipe puzzle. 
Like, so for everything that you have to do, rather than be in sync with a partner or anything, it's you have to, like, do those pipe puzzles to get the water to flow through. Oh, yeah. But, like, to achieve perfect synchronization, that's all you have to do. <laughs> but then it also has, like, the shooting mechanics and everything that you want to do. But, like, in order to move one foot, you have to do, like, this really quick oh, little God. stupid puzzle So thing. some kind of Bioshock hell. Yes! <laughs> and yeah. you only have so much time to do it before oh, Charlie course. Day's brain explodes. Okay, Jessica, what video game do you want us to ruin? Okay. I would really like an adaptation of The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, uh, or any of those Stieg Larson novels, like the whole thing, whatever. Well, um, you are the tattoo artist. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> I was going to say, do Girl with the Dragon Tattoo Origins, where you play as the tattoo artist and give her the dragon tattoo. Um, I'm going to go back to Guillermo del Toro, or even the comics. I want you to ruin Hellboy for me. Well, uh, how to ruin Hellboy. I think you could make, um, a Hellboy game a pretty horrible adaptation by making it a uh, puzzle game. Okay. Like, uh. in the sense of you, like, battle, like, you just, you fought battles with, like, puzzles, almost like, uh, like Bejeweled. Yeah. And it's just, and it's just some big monster. Yeah, it's like, there's the huge fight scene between Hellboy and, and, and whatever demon, and then you go into, like, Bejeweled mode. No, I I would ruin Hellboy by making it like that like GameCube era peripheral game. So you needed to have the giant Hellboy fist peripheral, <laughs> and it had like crappier, even like crappier than Wii motion controls. Wow! Of punching things with the Hellboy punch fist, and just a whole cam that's been spray painted red. There you go. Yeah, that would be my Hellboy For game. For some reason that brings into my head babysitting mama of like, no, 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 don't shake the baby. Please don't shake the Please baby. Please don't punch the baby. I'm gonna shake the baby if I want to take my baby. It's my baby. You can't tell me what to do with it. <laughs> Alright, Connor, lay it on me. What am I ruining? Alright, Grant, how would you ruin an Invader Zim game? I don't know. I think the perfect way to ruin Invader Zim is to drain all the humor out of it and just make it a stupid, dark, gritty shooter game. Make it serious. Yeah, make yeah. it serious. That would kind of ruin the point of Invader Zim. Yeah. No, Dude, the ball. Gur doesn't moves. talk about tacos. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. Gur doesn't talk about tacos. But he does talk about Doom, but all he says is Doom. Gur is just his totally emotionless titan, his mech. Mm -hmm. And he's getting the mech and just blow stuff up, and it's all grayscale and stupid and like. It should be fun, but you're empty inside. And I don't know. There's like some random damsel in distress you need to save who gets fridged at the end. Just, like, make it every bad generic action shooter game. Yeah. So, we're curious to hear from you guys. Uh, what's your favorite video game adaptation? What makes a good adaptation for you? Is there anything you think can't be made into a good adaptation? Gilmore Girls. Yeah. <laughs> Things like that. Uh, hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, whatever, Google+, I guess. We have a Reddit now. We do have a subreddit now. Uh, if you go to our Volcano Bake Meat, we have our own subreddit. Uh, at the time of this recording, there's nothing there, but hopefully by the time this gets to you, there will be stuff, and that'll be good. So with that, we're Volcano Bake Meat. I'm Grant. I'm Jeff. I'm Jessica. I'm Paige. And I'm Connor. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and check out our official blog at volcanobakemeat.wordpress.com. If you like the Volcano Bake Meat podcast, let us know by rating us on iTunes and Stitcher.com.
It helps us out a lot, and we appreciate it.